Welcome to the NIHR Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. Hello, I'm Adam Smith, and I'm delighted to be hosting this podcast for uh, the NIHR Dementia Researcher website. I sound particularly northern today. I don't know. Am I putting that on? Um, today, I am joined by three amazingly talented early career researchers, bigging them all up there, uh, to discuss day two of the Alzheimer's Association International Virtual Conference. Uh, with so much content to take in and the chance to go back and watch again, what we're going to do today is share our favorite talks from the day so that we might highlight something that you have perhaps missed or inspire you to take a look. It's a little bit different because usually... The audience for these podcasts are people who haven't managed to actually make it out to the conferences, but this year everybody could attend, which is fantastic. Um, so I'd like to welcome first timers. Um, we have Rory Boyle, who's a PhD candidate from the Whelan Lab at uh, Trinity College Dublin, research in neuroimaging and cognitive reserve, and whose name apparently means red-headed king. Um, yep, we, it does. <laughs> we also have uh, Courtney Klosk who is a doctoral candidate from the University of Kentucky reading neuroinflammation in Alzheimer's disease, who also has a very successful side hustle in dancing, I believe. Is that something you still do, Courtney? No, I grew up doing it. So I started when I was three and continued till I was about a junior in college. Um, but I haven't kept up with it in grad school. I still have my ballet shoes in my apartment, though. So, so you could take it up at any moment. Yes, I could go put them on right now and do some ballet for you. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, we could always flip this to make this a video version of the podcast if you'd like oh, to don a tutu. Um, yep. <laughs> and uh, Rory, although as much as you're the redheaded king, you, you actually have black hair. So that yeah, wouldn't really but work I, for video. No, but I have a cousin called Rory who has red hair. So um, yeah, growing up, I was called, my family called me Rory Do, which means uh, confusingly in Irish or Asgelga red-haired king with black hair <laughs> and my cousin with red hair was called Rory Rua which means red-haired red-haired king so uh yeah not a lot of sense made there but yep <laughs> is that the equivalent of calling you know like this this the slim guy fat and a fat guy slim uh, I, I, yeah, can, like, I can say that as the fat guy <laughs> yeah I think my mom was just copying my auntie she, she liked her nephew's name but then never copped on that uh I would never have ginger hair so it didn't really work out well, thank you very much, uh, Courtney and Rory, as our first-timers, and we do also welcome back expat uh, Dr. James Quinn, who's a research fellow at Massachusetts General Hospital, researching the role of neuropeptides and precision medicine. Is that still, James? Because you, you, you're a man of many talents. You're always looking at new things. Is that still your field? Yeah, so definitely kind of what I'm mainly focusing on. It's predominantly neuropeptides, really why they're getting dysregulated in dementia and whether they could be a potential prime marker and therapeutic target. So it's really kind of my area of expertise at the moment. And, and I feel like I've not suitably picked on you with, with you know, <laughs> we've got Courtney with her I, dancing. I can't dance. I can't Rory dance. with his red hair. I've, I've, I, can't, I can't pick on you in any other way other than I imagine everybody else picks on you there for your accent. Uh, uh, somewhat. My my parents got very annoyed when I said, um, my girlfriend would attest to this, when she has a lovely, uh, I have to get this right, so a basil plant. 
but I said basil to my parents. My parents basically disowned me at that point in time. <laughs> Seems that it very reasonable. Are you, do you get annoyed with all your colleagues walking in going, do you want a cup of tea, James? I'm the one offering to make them tea. So I feel like that's how I've made friends here. Um, but I do remember when I came for my interview, I brought uh, Scottish shortbread. I mean, it was close enough, but that went down really well. So I think sometimes you have to embrace the stereotypes a little bit. Well, I think that's enough uh, bullying of everybody. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and this, of course, is your uh, third AIC recording with us, James. Uh, so I remember in our very first one, you were very critical of a certain uh, researcher that's just been made a full professor, going, they're not the young ones anymore, we are. And of course now, James, three years in and fellow, I, you're one of the old guard now. You're not one of the young people anymore. I know what went wrong, Adam, and I keep coming back. So, um, but I think the podcasts are really good. I remember every year I've taken part and then as soon as conference end, has ended, I've just listened back to all of them um, kind of in a row. And it's a really good kind of way of finding out what early career researchers as well as mid-career senior investigators think of what's going on at the conference. It's a lot easier to listen to a podcast than a talk. Well, that's very kind of you to say so. And thank you every very much, everybody, for coming down here and joining us. And I think this is the first time as well where all the panellists are people who aren't resident in the UK right now. So that's uh, another first for us as, as well. So uh, the kind of less serious introductions aside, maybe we should move on to the more serious introductions. So Rory, could I ask you to properly introduce yourself? Yeah, yeah, no problem. So uh, my work focuses on the development and validation of um, neuroimaging measures of brain health, but primarily cognitive reserve. So uh, probably most here are familiar with the concept, but cognitive reserve is a construct that can explain how some people are able to maintain their cognitive function despite having significant levels of pathology or despite experiencing brain aging. So it's a really potentially powerful mechanism because ultimately, if you can figure out how to enhance cognitive reserve, you might be at one stage able to slow decline, slow cognitive decline, or able to maintain function in people who are who have uh, high levels of Alzheimer's pathology. And um, but I suppose the, the focus of my work is that we don't really have a solid way of measuring cognitive reserve. So uh, I'm using structural and functional MRI data alongside cognitive and social behavioural data to try and develop an objective neuroimaging measure, and we're using machine learning techniques to uh, apply to these data to try and develop a robust generalizable measure that uh, hopefully or it better be uh, accurate across multiple data sets so that's what my work is looking at at the moment. That's really interesting thank you Rory and, and do you know it's funny enough you should mention that because that's something that occurred to me yesterday is so much of what we see and hear at the conference is looking at those though the disease itself rather than looking at the people without the disease to understand why they don't get it as opposed to why people do. And, and I don't know, it's just interesting that the focus seems to be on the disease rather than people without yeah. the disease. Yeah, it's sort of, a, I suppose it's a bit more of an optimistic way of looking at things as well. So it's not, not all doom and gloom. Uh, and um, to play to those stereotypes again, that's the Irish way, right? <laughs> be grand. <laughs> <laughs> and Courtney, could I come to you next? Yeah, so I do uh, neuroinflammation and Alzheimer's disease research, and I specifically look at how the apoe isoforms impact neuroinflammation in Alzheimer's disease. So definitely a big growing topic right now. 
And the way I'm kind of approaching this is in a broad sense. So I'm doing a lot of um, work on human autopsy tissue from the Sanders Brown Center on Aging Brain Bank. And I'm comparing APOE3 and APOE4 um, patient samples to just kind of get a broad sense of their neuroinflammatory panels and profiles in their brain. Uh, moving from RNA to protein and then looking at the histology in the tissue and then kind of taking all of the things that I'm finding in the human tissue and targeting neuroinflammation pathways in mouse models, looking at how the APOE isoforms impact specific pathways. Well, that's really interesting. And funnily enough, uh, Dr. Lindsay Sinclair, who did the podcast with us yesterday, uh, works in the Southwest UK uh, Brain Bank. Uh, and that's that's her field as well. Do you do you get brain tissue from the UK brain banks? I know they ship it all over the world as well, don't they? We might, but we the brain bank that we have in Sanders Brown is pretty extensive. So I think that all of my work is done in house. But I I couldn't I can imagine other people in the center getting stuff from abroad. Well, ju- just a plug for the UK there. The UK brain banks are quite happy to supply brain tissue elsewhere. And uh, James, we'll come to you now. Um, so, yeah, I, I did my PhD in the UK at the University of Manchester, worked with Professor Nigel Cooper and Dr. Catherine Kellett, and there I was looking at tau proteolysis, um, so that's a post-translation modification of tau, how that can be a potential biomarker of uh, different types of tau disease, so things like Alzheimer's disease, corticobase regeneration, and progressive supranuclear palsy. Um, after completing my PhD, I moved to Mass General Hospital to work with Dr. Becky Carlisle and uh, Dr. Stephen Arnold, where they've got some really exciting preliminary data looking at neuropeptides. These are signaling molecules in the brain, pretty similar to neurotransmitters, um, and essentially showing that they could be really good biomarkers of synaptic health as they're uh, picked up in both brain and CSF. So my project is really just to go and do a deep dive into these neuropeptides, see if we can improve them as a biomarker, potential therapeutic target, and understand what's going wrong uh, in disease. Okay, so the focus for today's session uh, was biomarkers. So before I go to each of you to ask uh, what your own highlights were, perhaps we can uh, talk about what the Alzheimer's Association trailed as the main plenary sessions. Um, Rory, uh, did you attend the Imaging Biomarkers AD Prevention Plenary? Yeah, I did. Susan Lando? Yeah, so uh, it was a really, really great sort of interesting talk there was there was a whole lot covered uh, so I'll, I suppose I'll try to give a brief overview but um, yeah Susan started off talking about how um, the, the, comparing different amyloid and tau profiles that you, can, that you can discover based on PET imaging and she just sort of or so, a couple of facts she pointed out that I found really interesting were that uh, one in five people at the age of 90 years old who are diagnosed with Alzheimer's are actually amyloid negative uh, based on PET imaging. And then while uh, tau is, uh, can be, is associated with amyloid positivity, um, a third of people who are amyloid positive actually have tau levels in the normal range. So uh, I suppose Susan pointed out from the sort of discrepant findings that uh, pathologies other than just amyloid and tau can explain a substantial amount of cognitive impairment. Um, and then I suppose the next thing Susan sort of focused on was how um, drug trials tend to focus on enrolling people who are actually cognitively impaired uh, right now to see if, you know, the candidate treatments or drugs can reduce impairment or slow decline. But, 
you know, there's there's the, the argument that the pathological effects might be sort of too deep rooted at that stage to to maybe reverse decline or slow impairment or slow decline. So uh, Susan was sort of emphasizing that it's really important to identify uh, biomarker profiles of cognitively healthy people as well, so that these uh, individuals can also be used in, in treatment or prevention trials at earlier stages. And uh, I suppose that's where Susan then sort of switched focus to uh, prevention. Um, and she talked about uh, the US pointer study so it's sort of a, the US analogue of the, uh, the finger trial from Finland, which uh, found that a, a, you know, a two-year intervention or multi-domain intervention uh, comprised of an exercise intervention, a diet intervention, cognitive stimulation, and uh, sort of self-monitoring monitoring of your heart health was found to have a protective effect in cognitive function. And uh, Susan, I think, is the, maybe the lead of the US pointer study so she was describing their goals. To, so their goal is to investigate whether that multi-domain intervention will have the same effects in the US, but they're also collecting uh, really rich neuroimaging data. So they'll be able to look at the, the neural mechanisms underlying these uh, the cognitive protective effects. And they'll be able to ask whether uh, lifestyle factors can protect cognitive function uh, via, say, effects on vascular uh, pathology or Alzheimer's pathology. And they'll also be able to look at whether, you know, PET imaging measures of amyloid or tau or other neuroimaging measures at baseline are able to predict uh, individuals who respond best to interventions. So I suppose then you could target treatments maybe at these individuals as they'll stand to benefit most from treatments. So that was, uh, that was a really nice overview of the pointer study or other goals. And uh, I suppose the close and the take-home message that uh, Susan made, which is really nice, was that and to, op to optimize Alzheimer's treatment and prevention, it's all about matching the right participant or participant group to the right treatment strategy at the right time. So I thought it was a nice sort of easy to understand and very clear take home message from the talk. And, and that's a message that's come through loud and clear a few times now, hasn't it? And various yeah. things is, is it might not necessarily be the drug that's at fault, but it's the wrong people at the wrong time rather than, than an ineffective treatment. Um, I, I, I attended this session as well. I have to say, she got through a lot of content in a short space of time. I, I, I was struggling to keep up. I may have to go back and watch, watch yeah, that one back. I, I definitely will too. I was typing notes one-handed, so uh, <laughs> I was a fair bit slower as well. But yeah, there was a huge amount of content, but it was really, in fairness, it was really clearly presented as well. So. Um, it, absolutely it was uh, i think it was it was a great talk it's one to, to that i think you can watch back a few uh, a few times and i think you'll get something new from it each time I, sh I should add that you don't normally type notes one-handed right it's because you've got a dodgy shoulder right now yeah well yeah that's my it's my bad hand as well so i don't normally type notes at all maybe but uh yeah a bit slower this time <laughs> so J james and Cordy, did you watch that one too did you have anything to add to to rory's summary um, I yeah I watched it as well and I thought it was a great talk and I agree that it's very like she crammed a lot of information in there but it was very well presented as somebody who does not do neuroimaging I was able to understand most of the talk um, and kind of going off of what you're talking about with the pointer study and targeting the right groups I I was it's something that I've heard before but it's something that I liked how she said it was like the people that have amyloid positive they're amyloid positive in their brain, but they might have low tau. 
um, that when we're targeting them for certain clinical studies and everything that we should try and focus on what else is present in their brain. Um, like she was like, if they're amyloid positive and low tau, they could have vascular pathology that if we could treat that, we could help all other symptoms as well. And so I think that kind of hitting that at multiple points, instead of just saying you have Alzheimer's disease and only targeting that, I think that that was um, one of the ideas that I really took away from the talk. Yeah, absolutely. Good point. What about you, James? Echo what Courtney said and what Robbie said, but I thought it was a very kind of good example of precision medicine based approaches. And I really liked the the points you made about one of the clinical trials back in 2015, that was a failed anti-amyloid trial, but 36% of the patients they had in that trial were amyloid negative. So it was an anti-amyloid drug and testing on 36% of these patients who don't have any amyloid pathology in the first place. So I thought that was like a real kind of key take home message that we need to be looking at patients with a much more holistic view, taking into account all the pathology that's in the brain and also all the different environmental factors that can play um, a role. And also looking for those kind of easy hits that we can make. So let's say they've got a big vascular buildup. We can look at treating them in the statin instead of going down this approach of only focusing on kind of one drug to cure Alzheimer's disease, which is never going to happen. And that's tricky as well, isn't it? Because I think, you know, um, pharma companies have to consider carefully the screening and screen failure costs, which has upped the ante on getting the right people into the right trials. Um, but also at the same time, the screen fails go up because they're looking for amyloid, that uh, they're having to look for amyloid before they decide who to, who to enroll into the trials. Um, which has put the cost up on and so uh, I think it's it's tricky finding the right people for the trials as well which is uh, driven the costs up as a result I'm not quite sure what point that's, trying the, to make, that's but... the, perf the perfect transition to the next talk it is um, which I'm <laughs> going to come to, to you about actually I think James was uh, so you attended the blood-based biomarkers uh, session from Charlotte uh, Tunison um what did you learn yeah so um charlotte tinnison is one of the kind of big players in the alzheimer's disease biomarker field um, so she's based at the amsterdam center um and essentially she really just gave a tour de force kind of overview of plasma tau uh a beta gfap nfl um as potential ad biomarkers um, she also mentioned this pre-screening idea that they were able to, by looking at uh, plasma amyloid, they were able to reduce the number of uh, lumbar punctures down from 434 to 220 lumbar punctures to get 100 patients into clinical trial. So I thought that was a really nice example of using plasma biomarkers in order to reduce the number of LPs because LPs take a long time. They're like an hour and also they can be perceived as being uh, invasive. Um, so that was a, a really good analogy. Uh, and she kind of talked a little bit about the two tests that she's developed. So within the group, they've developed their a novel anti-amyloid uh, approach to using a Samoa assay, which is um, this kind of very fancy technique, but it's essentially a big multiplex ELISA that takes place in individual beads within a well. So you can have multiple wells with different antibodies on it and you can get ultra-sensitive detection. Um, so for example, NFL, you can detect down to like three uh, picograms, whereas in, in Analyzer, you can detect, detect like 70 nanograms. So we're really getting to extremely low levels of uh, 
extremely high levels of sensitivity. Um, so she talked a little bit about that and how they've been able to multiplex these AD biomarkers to GFAP, which is a marker of astrocytosis, NFL, which is a marker of um, kind of axonal damage, and then amyloid, um, and showed kind of in lots of different cohorts kind of what was going on. Um, and yeah, it was just a really good talk. I mean, a lot of the talks, uh, and also talked a little bit about pre-analytical uh, protocols to reduce variability, showing that amyloid left at room temperature for 24 hours decreases, but in a fridge it's stable, and this sort of thing. So it's, it's really just showing that blood-based biomarkers now are a point which we can use in clinical practice, well, in, I wouldn't say clinical practice, but in kind of research practice in order to kind of improve the patient recruitment into clinical trials. Um, but yeah, I mean, I could talk about this forever, so I'll uh, let you move on to another. Well, it's another the holy grail, isn't it? That uh, blood-based biomarkers, the the holy grail that comes up. I, I mean, certainly, I think it's come up at the AIC for three, four years now, and it always just seems to be on the horizon. It just, oh wait, we're nearly there. Oh, I don't know. I mean, you get a sense every year that we come back. It, it's getting that much closer. Um, I guess we just have to hope this time next year we'll be we'll be there or not we that the the community will be there because this isn't just something that one group is looking at of course is it it's something that there's a and i should get a plug in here there's a whole uh, professional interest area part of iStart which is specifically for blood-based biomarkers oh, and um anybody interested should join that pia and we had uh, henrik uh doing a podcast with us last week uh, who talks about this very eloquently and passionately. So please do look through our archive to find that podcast. Uh, did anybody, uh, Rory, Courtney, did you have anything to add on that um, on that session from Charlotte? No, I, I didn't get a chance to listen to it, unfortunately. It was my, my dinner time at that stage. <laughs> I love the idea you took a lunch break. What? Oh, dinner, dinner oh, dinner. <laughs> what about you, Courtney? I, I was able to watch it and I, it, I like... After that talk, I just felt like everything just exploded in the field because the she was talking about 217, um, the PCHOW 217, and then the next talk a few hours or like an hour later, then the paper came out. So like my brain is on overload with this stuff right now, but I was just fascinated by the talk and it was a good lead into the rest of the talks for the day in that paper. Absolutely. Um, I, I know I'd prepared all of you suggesting things that you might want to go to and one of the other things I suggested which was the last very last of the live sessions today which was the Leeds um, LEADS not Leeds from Yorkshire uh, who just got promoted to the premiership uh, sporadic early onset AD in the spotlight session um, did anybody actually manage to get to that I could take this one again uh, go James listen in um, it was super interesting. Um, I don't think there's too many cohorts that really focus on this early onset Alzheimer's disease outside of the, the known Procenalin mutations, APP mutations. So it's essentially a cohort where they are looking at early onset Alzheimer's disease, so anything before the ages of 65. Um, and they just, it was definitely kind of early stages of the cohort. They didn't, they had some kind of concrete data, but they really just laid out their plans what they're going to be doing over the next uh, four years with the cohort. And then the plan is to then translate that into a therapeutic unit, therapeutic arm, where they can test uh, kind of novel, novel drugs in, in this cohort. It was really interesting. They kind of broke down 
clinical criteria. I, I think if you are if you are interested, it's definitely one to watch. I don't think I could do a good enough job of summarizing what was said because it was looking at MRI data from the cohort. It was looking at uh, clinical uh, demographic data from the cohort. So it's not really something you can kind of explain, but it's just a really interesting cohort and it's kind of spread throughout the US and they are planning on taking it international as well. So it can be really exciting for the future. Um, there's a few people working in that space, isn't there? I'm, I'm thinking particularly of people like uh, Craig Ritchie with the Prevent Trial and um, Clive Ballard with uh, Protect as well. Um, just thinking of the UK examples, I'm, I know that there are others in the US uh, and elsewhere in the world as well. Thank you very much, James. Um, so, uh, Courtney, I'm going to come back to you because, of course, with so many posters, so many online sessions, on-demand sessions, live sessions, and biomarkers being such a vast uh, topic. Um, tell me, what, what uh, talks and posters caught your particular attention today? So I have not gotten to the posters yet because I was, there were so many other talks that I want to listen to, so I'm getting to the posters later. Um, but for the talks, um, the, my favorite one for the whole day of like all of the sessions in it um, was the role of microglial activation in the development of amyloid and tau pathology. Um, so I, there were four talks in that session and they were all just very fascinating, um, kind, of kind of talking about targeting um, microglia phenotypes in a different way than I would normally expect and kind of more in a biomarker um, idea. Um, so I would suggest going to check out all of those. There was one specifically on higher TRIM2 levels and microglial activation associated with a slower rate of amyloid PET increase in human and transgenic mouse models of amyloid beta. And it was by Michael Ewers. Um, I don't remember where he is from, but his, his was one of the four talks and it was really great. Um, so I'd recommend checking those out. Um, there was one that I really liked that didn't really have anything to do with biomarkers today. It was from Lee Gao at Harvard um, on sleep disturbance and incidence and Alzheimer's disease. And in this study, they followed patients for 12 years um, and kind of looked at their self-reported data. And it was, I was really fascinated by their findings saying that if you have, if you sleep more than nine hours, um, you're, uh, likelihood of having Alzheimer's disease or developing Alzheimer's disease increased. And in my head, I'm always telling people you need to get the, you need to get as much sleep as you can. Whereas I think instead you have to find that nice balance. Um, and they did talk about a potential mechanism in there. Um, so I think future studies in that will be really fascinating. Um, yeah, uh, I, I attended that one. Well, I, um, that was a one to, it was a watch was was that it wasn't a poster yeah it was a yeah so i went to that one too um i found that uh talk really fascinating too i know that i i saw that they used uk biobank data which particularly caught my eye because where i work at ucl has a biobank and they had five hundred two thousand uh data sets people to look at which is just such a huge number i anybody who's interested in data sets should definitely look at the uk biobank and given this study was taking place at Massachusetts General Hospital, it's just to show you can access this data elsewhere in the world. And it was fascinating. So six to nine hours sleep were uh, two per thousand were going to go on to develop um, uh, cognitive impairment. Whereas for the nine hours plus sleep, 
it was 6.6 .6 per thousand. So it was, you know, more than three times uh, as likely, which I, I agree with you. I mean, who thought more sleep was better? I mean, that's mm -hmm. not the case at all looking at, I mean, obviously it's going to be complex. There'll be more factors to, to play into that. I'm sure if you wanted to unpick and find fault with this, I'm sure you could. But uh, also sleep apnea was a factor and daytime sleepiness mm -hmm. uh, came into that. And that was another, there was another sleep study, I don't know if you picked up on mm -hmm. the day as well, that was talking about more frequent napping through the day um, was another risk, another potential biomarker as well, looking at sleep patterns through the day. Mm. Let's go back through my notes. Uh, anyway, sorry, I interrupted you, but uh, yeah, I, I found that very interesting too. What else did you see? EEG um, talk, the valuable tool to do screening for neurogeneration and preclinical Alzheimer's disease um, at the Paris Brain Institute. Um, I'm not an EEG person, so I'm not even going to try and really get into that, but it was a great talk and it really gave like a nice overview of really what they were trying to do. Um, and it does really seem like it's a good um, potential way to look at neurodegeneration. Their study was, um, from the way she presented it, I really enjoyed it. Um, that one I saw you had tweeted about, and so I went and checked it out. So that one was good. Uh, yeah. Uh, do you know what? Funny enough, I've, I've written a note here that I didn't mention on that sleep study, which something did occur to me. So if I'm a big sleeper, and I know this, and I suddenly go, whoa, I'm gonna stop getting quite so much sleep. I'm gonna, I'm gonna start getting up earlier in the mornings and going to bed later at night. Would it make any difference? <laughs> Is the, uh, I think that's a follow-up study for that one. Looking at if you can change sleep patterns, does it have a, any effect? Yeah, I don't get the full nine hours, but I do get a fair amount of sleep. So I was like, as soon as I heard that, I was like, oh no. <laughs> Well, and also as well, of course, we, you know, um, the Mediterranean way of having that siesta in the afternoon when it's during the hot bit, but is that offset then by that Mediterranean diet? So, <laughs> um, so Rory, I'm going to come to you next. Uh, could you maybe tell us what you've seen and heard today? Yeah, yeah. So uh, actually, I suppose I've seen one poster that uh, Courtney might have seen the talk related to this poster, but it was from... Uh, Nico Franzmeier in Michael Ewer's lab. So they're, they're in um, LMU in Munich, Ludwig Maximilian, Maximilian University. But yeah, the, the poster showed really nice results showing that uh, soluble TREM2 uh, from, from CSF attenuated the effect of APOE on cognitive decline and hippocampal atrophy. So it sort of suggests that maybe soluble TREM2 um, has a protective effect for Alzheimer's. It might be a mechanism through which reserve or resilience operates. So that was uh, that was personally quite interesting. Um, and then I seen a really nice talk. Um, it was part of the neuroimaging predictors of cognitive decline session, and it was from Razvan Marinescu from MIT. I think he might also be affiliated to uh, to UCL. But he, he gave an overview of the results from the, from the Tadpole Challenge. So the Tadpole Challenge is a sort of machine learning, I suppose, competition where um, participants, 33 different teams were given um, a lot of cognitive clinical data and neuroimaging data, including uh, MRI, PET, DTI and CSF measures as well. 
and they were asked to try and predict three different target variables. So uh, ventricular volume from MRI data, um, the clinical diagnosis of Alzheimer's or MCI, and uh, cognitive function as measured by the, uh, the ADAS COG scale. Um, so I suppose not to, to get too into the results, but what was really interesting from my point of view was that um, machine learning models were able to outperform random chance for predicting clinical diagnosis, a follow-up, as well as a ventricular volume, but um, no model could actually perform better than a random guess for uh, predicting follow-up cognitive function. So if you, not to bring everything back to cognitive reserve, but it sort of shows the, the potential for cognitive reserve that there is a, there is a huge gap between um, neuroimaging data and cognitive function and there is something else there at play which if we could measure it better maybe we could predict these things better as well from baseline data but yeah it was really interesting and really well presented and it was an actual an academic challenge with uh, with cash prizes so that was nice to see as well I suppose <laughs> but yeah uh, fantastic was was that um, have we covered everything else or was there anything else particular today you want to draw attention to uh, yeah, I've seen a, a, another um, really nice talk as well from um, McKenna Williams in uh, UCSD, and they were present. She was present, presenting work from the uh, the Vietnam era twin studies. So that really nice cohort where they, I think they're Vietnam veterans or from that era anyway. Obviously, but uh, she showed that uh, an Alzheimer signature uh, measure of cardiac thickness was not able to predict. And progression to Alzheimer's from um, mild cognitive impairment, but a signature based on gray matter mean diffusivity was able to predict progression. So that was sort of nice because usually this Alzheimer's cardiac thickness signature seems to be quite uh, powerful. So it was sort of it was nice to show that maybe something something else can outperform it as well for predicting diagnosis. So I, I found that really interesting as well. I didn't see that one, but it sounds like it's worth going to. Uh going to look up yeah, yeah it was um, definitely, definitely worth a look um i'm gonna to go to you now james you've attended everything today right i mean you've uh, got a big list now <laughs> I, I tried to i think there's three talks i kind of want to talk about um the first one was this covid19 talk it was in the developing topic session it was really interesting it was led by um a soon-to-be phd student jennifer cooper at ubc and they looked at gfap total tau uh use DHL1 and NFL in COVID-19 positive plasma. And they showed that um, there was a high percentage of delirium in COVID. This is something that we're kind of, people in mass general are looking at. Um, and they showed that GFAP significantly increased and total tau significantly decreased in COVID-19 versus ICU controls. Um, and actually none of these measures significantly correlated with uh, a measure of respiratory illness. So it shows that the, neurology, the neurological aspects of the disease are separate from the respiratory aspects of the disease. So I was like fascinated by that. And I'm going to kind of send that back to the people in my lab who are doing some COVID-19 work um, because it's, it, it, it's just very interesting to see like we can detect neurological aspects of COVID-19. Um, and then the next talk that I wanted to talk about was the kind of overall session about precision medicine. Um, and there was one talk that really was it, I found very interesting. Um, I will sure I'll get the name for you in a second, but um, where they essentially showed that uh, they did all of this, made, made this, I think it was called a human pharmacome, 
which was uh, all of the data that's publicly available about Alzheimer's disease, plus all of the data publicly available about drugs, put it together, sent uh, machine learning to do whatever it does, and they pulled out some targets, but they said that they were only able to pick the targets to test further by having a kind of cell biologist in, in the room to sit down and go through the targets that were pulled out. So it was good to see that my job is going to be safe for the future. Um, but it was a, a really interesting way of kind of putting together all the data that's publicly available and making it so um, it can be kind of used for something kind of positive, really. Um, let me just get the name of the presenter for you. Here you are, Martin Hoffman Apatus. Um, but yeah, it was it was it was a, a fascinating talk. I, I'm not great with this kind of big data approach, but it was a, a really well uh, described presentation. And then finally, um, I think the biggest kind of news response from the day has been about the Tau two one seven phospho uh, blood based biomarker. So I went to the kind of blood-based biomarker session and as it was being presented, I got a notification on my phone from the New York Times being like, there's a new biomarker for uh, Alzheimer's disease. So it was it's very promising. Um, and then a, few, a lot of the other talks kind of throughout the day were looking at this Tau217 phosphoepitope um, and comparing it against the uh, Tau181 uh, as well as the Tau231 uh, phosphoepitope sites and showing that they kind of they're all pretty similar, but the, the kind of 217 is the best and that it was able to predict amyloid positivity, future tau pet uh, positivity, and a ton of other things. And that it is a really exciting biomarker. And a lot of the presenters were talking about how to translate this into the clinic. Uh, uh, there wasn't one specific talk, but I can get the, the paper up for you. It was titled by uh, the first lead author was Sebastian. Palm QBIST, I can't, can't pronounce surname from Lund University, which is actually a plasma P tau two one seven for distinguishing Alzheimer's disease, um, and that paper was kind of released released today, uh, comparing Alzheimer's disease against other neurodegenerative disorders. So showing it's very specific to Alzheimer's disease. Um, again, I don't think anybody knows why uh, all of the other tau disease and neurodegenerative disorders don't show any increases in phospho tau when there's clearly phospho tau in the brain. Um, but yeah, it was a very interesting uh, presentation. And I think overall, it was a very kind of biomarker heavy day, but it was a biomarker day, so uh, to be expected. It's interesting how these things, you know, go through trend, um, to use a, a modern term. It was last year at the AIC, Bart the Stupa stood on the stage and said, don't want to misquote him, but he was, you know, uh, it's all about, it's all about amyloid. Stop worrying too much about tau. <laughs> um, I'm sure he wasn't saying tau is not relevant, but it was, you know, let's focus on amyloid. Um, and this year tau has been, you know, back on, back on top. In fact, didn't AIC, didn't Alzheimer's Association have a specific tau conference last year as well? This year, Adam. Or was it this year? I'm sorry. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Right. <laughs> it was probably one of the last conferences that took place because it was back in February in Washington. Um, a few a few people from my floor went. Yeah, I heard it was a great conference. Uh, but yes, that was this year. That was this year. So I went in search. I, I attended lots too. And I went in search of um, to try and pick out some some little gems uh hidden amongst the posters and I found lots. Um, so many um, 
posters uh, looking particularly at uh, cognitive testing, use of cognitive testing, variations on cognitive testing, uh, cognitive testing games. There was a particularly interesting one from uh, Bruno Broncher from Brussels that I found was uh, particularly interesting. That's worth a look if people uh, are still browsing back through uh, yesterday's posters there was an interesting one on hand dexterity as well and uh, using speech recognition um, uh, and I, I, I think what kind of occurred to me particularly was with all these potential for use of biomarkers in combinations which um, so many of these were suggesting um, is how few of these actually then transition through to clinical practice i think i did make this point in twitter before it's quite interesting they all often will show so show some indication but never enough to be more commonly used or to find their way into into mainline practice i don't know would you would you agree with that disagree um, i just think I'll, I'll i'll bring up a comment someone else made in one of the presentations they said it takes 20 years to get a biomarker into, into clinical practice. So it's the same as getting a therapy out, you know, it needs to go through the same level of validation. Um, so I think Kai Benno talked about the first CSF tau paper that came out, CSF tau amyloid paper came out in 1996 to show that it was differentially different between AD and control. And it's probably only just starting to get into the clinic. Um, they said they do neurofilament light in the clinic, but they still let me do tau and amyloid. So it's just a very long iterative process. But it'd be interesting in 10, 15 years time to see whether there'll be this massive plethora of different uh, biomarkers out there and stuff that you can do at home instead of having to go to a clinic. Well, which leads me nicely onto another, I'm just gonna jump through mine quickly. Iona uh, Pachi uh, from the University of Athens had this fantastic poster about using sniff sticks, sniff sticks. Um, and uh, this resonated with me because we uh, hosted a webinar just a few weeks ago with a, a guy from Tehran who was talking about the olfactory system and links to cognition and um, the relationship between able to um, the sniff sticks were able to different or help differentiate between people who had uh, neuropsychiatric difficulties as opposed to a, a neurological disorder quite reliably and you could see how using that would be relatively inexpensive. Um, it would be fairly quick and easy potentially to to use as well in clinical practice. So, so that had a lot of potential. I'd like to see more on that. Um, we had, of course, as well, uh, quite a few posters today on gate, although unfortunately some, many of the ones on gate looked like they weren't loading properly. Uh, Rihanna McArdle, who uh, joins us regularly for podcasts and is joining us later in the week as well. She had a poster um, looking at gate combined with um, other things to look at, to differentiate between different dementia types. And I think that's got a lot of potential and I'm, I'm hoping we might be able to do a podcast in future specifically looking um, at gate as well. And there was also an interesting talk from uh, Eva Vassil, Vasiljevic from Wisconsin, um, really just reinforcing APOE again as a demonstrating um, that people with APOE uh, dementia uh, onset occurs earlier with a faster decline but it was just interesting data there was 16 years worth of, of data that they based that upon which was reinforced what I think we know. 
That was a lot to take in, wasn't it? And we're probably running loads to time. What I am going to do, though, is before we move on, I do want to give you all an opportunity to plug your own talks. I'm sure you're all presenting, right? You've all got posters, talks. Is there anything you'd like to plug? Courtney, first. I have a poster. Um, It's in the Basic Sciences and Pathogenesis button at the top. Um, And you can just type in my name and it'll come up. I'm the only Courtney. Um, in that group, so it's pretty easy, but it's on uh, the impaired neuroinflammatory response of APOE4 patients in Alzheimer's disease. Fantastic, and did you do one of the awesome narrations? I'm loving the narration, poster with narration, I'm loving that. (laughs) No, I did not. Um, I had a, at the same time this poster was due, I had another conference, I went to the GLIA conference, Um, so I was trying to finish up both posters and I just time got away from me um, but I have watched a bunch of them and I do really enjoy it and I wish I had uh, taken the time to make one well um, please do everybody go visit uh, Courtney's uh, poster there and um, I think if anybody gets a chance to narrate their poster in future they definitely should what about you Rory yeah so I have a, an oral presentation on Thursday as part of a featured research session so the, the presentation is titled um, validation of composite proxy measures of cognitive reserve and it's part of the featured research session um, what can longitudinal cohorts tell us about the association between modifiable dementia risk factors and the aging brain so that that's on Thursday at um, the live chat or the live chat room is live um, at 11am on Thursday central daylight time so that's 5pm Ireland and UK time so I'll be there to take questions, but I'll be typing very slowly. So be kind. Brilliant. Thanks, Roy. Is that one of the ones that's been recorded via Zoom and then shown back as a live session with you on the screen and everything? No, so the, I'm on the screen for the, the actual recorded talk, but I think we're just doing a chat room. We're not actually doing Zoom for the, uh, for the Q&A. So. Ah, okay. But fantastic. Well done. And that's, is that your first AAIC talk? Yeah, this is my first year at AIC, so my only exposure before was just the, the podcast, I suppose, last year. So, yeah, unusual first time, but uh, good. No, that, that's brilliant, and congratulations on being able to do a, a talk as well, and at your first uh, AIC. James, you. are you presenting? Yeah, so um, I, my poster was kind of yesterday, but you can still access it. So go on, if you go on the Basic Science Pathogenesis tab and just search Quinn, Q-I-N-N, um, posters there it is recorded so if you want to listen to me talk about the poster you can also look at the pdf if you'd rather not listen to my voice again um and then i'll just plug uh, the other person in my lab who had the poster so if you go on the biomarkers and search trombetta t-r-o-m-e-e-t-t-a i had to type in spell at the same time to make sure i got the spelling right um and she's got a, a poster on plasma biomarkers uh, using olink assay which a few people have presented on today which is this kind of uh, large scale uh, looking at thousands of analytes um, as a potential biomarker uh, and yeah, so it's been a it's been good to see kind of all the how they transitioned it virtual I know there's been a few hiccups but for the first time they're doing a virtual conference it's been impressive well that yeah that's what I was going to just spend a couple of minutes on before we wrap up it's brilliant right I mean I I have to say it could have all clearly gone horribly wrong dependent so much on technology but I mean from my perspective, I think this is amazing. I think Alzheimer's Association have done such an awesome job to pull this off. We shouldn't give them all the credit because I'm sure there's some brilliant IT company working alongside them to make this happen. But 
views, Rory? Yeah, well, definitely. And then when you throw on throw that on top of the fact that it's uh, it's free, it's pretty amazing, especially for those with you know don't have access to funding or even undergraduates or just regular uh, regular lay people who are just of an interest, and um, they can all sign up and access as much information as we can. So uh, it's really great that from that point of view, because I know a lot of other conferences went virtual but still kept the the fairly hefty registration fees and that so that alone is pretty amazing so the fact it works at all when it's free is pretty good (laughs) yeah i'd agree that that's put me off attending a couple of things later in the year i have to say the fact that they still charge and i don't know it's I mean, clearly they've got overheads to still cover, but yeah. I don't know if it, to, to pay the same amount of money when there isn't a venue and things like that does feel tricky. What about you, Courtney? What do you think? I've really enjoyed it. Um, the I, I feel like I'm getting to see a lot more than what I normally do in person because we don't have to run across the whole convention center and like you can just watch that one clip and then automatically go to the next talk. Um, You don't have to be like, oh, I'm stuck in this room for the full four sessions. You can switch between different talks and we have a whole month or two, depending on if you're an iStart member or not, to go back and watch more videos and check on the posters. So I think that um, as much as I wish I was in Amsterdam, this is a, a nice second. It is, isn't it? There's that kind of balance. Well, what you've lost in networking, we have gained in better use of time. You know, the ability to see so many things in one day is is, awesome. is really awesome. I, I will be interested to see if they survey afterwards the um, people living with dementia and carers and things which, of course, have been enabled to uh, to participate this year, which this is one conference that, that doesn't really have a high attendance, quite understandably so as well. I mean, I, you know, I think... Uh, it's quite heavy on the science that isn't to to say that people with dementia aren't aren't welcomed or their opinions aren't welcome but it it is a tricky one this one and I can understand why they don't encourage that it'll be interesting to see afterwards how many actually come back now and say yeah do you know what we that's one conference we we're not so bothered for that we we um or whether they the feedback is is yeah we welcomed the opportunity to see the people behind the research um Mm -hmm. What about you, James? Are you loving it? Um, yeah, I've, I've been enjoying it. It was good. My dad was able to come in and couldn't work out how to comment on my poster, but he sent me a message on WhatsApp with his question. So I was able to write that on, <laughs> write that on the, on the poster. And I think it's things like that, which are, are really, really good. And I think it does make it a lot more accessible. And it'd be interesting to see kind of next year if, uh, if the whole COVID situation is calmer, whether they will stick to a virtual format or whether it will be kind of a local format instead of being a kind of full, full-blown conference. It'd just be super interesting to see kind of where conferences go in the future. Um, but yeah, I've been really impressed and like the technical support have been amazing. Like my poster was online when I, when I went on Monday morning and within 10 minutes I emailed them, they'd put it up. So I think, yeah, there's been a few issues and um, it's taken a bit of time, but it's to be expected and the fact you can go back and look at all of them on demand. And I'm also interested to see like how uh, early career researchers have kind of managed it with, with respect to um, being in the lab and things. Cause like for me, a conference, you need to kind of fully get involved and like you go to AIC spend five or six days at a conference, you get really involved and have all the opportunities to network. So it'd be interesting. I don't know if you as dementia researcher kind of want to do anything around that. Um, it'd be quite interesting to get uh, some kind of, 
uh, feedback because I think it's quite an important thing because I, I put a, a Twitter poll out and it was like 67% of people have been going to virtual conferences have been going into the lab. So, I mean, I've taken like two or three days off uh, to focus on yeah. the conference, but then I'm going to go back in. So it'll be interesting to see how it changes, like, what's the word I'm looking for? How people kind of focus on things and how work gets in the way and um, all of these different things. Yeah, I think I agree. I understand in retrospectively whether people took specific time out to participate in the conference or just squeezed it in alongside other work and um, what their uh, PIs or bosses, you know, how they expected you to engage with the conference as well. It has been tricky because it's on different time zones, but I think the Alzheimer's uh, Association have done an amazing job the people behind it, the IT company, as you said, they've been super timely to respond to things. I think the, the whole conference is no harder to navigate than the real life conference. We're all getting slightly fewer steps, but we're getting more uh, talks in. Um, I've got better coffee at home, definitely, than any conference <laughs> venue I've ever been to at an Alzheimer's Association uh, event. So I'm pleased. Uh, I, I think it it really is great. And we were talking about this before as well, just as a, my team about, about the future. And you could see how the, there is a place for this, irrespective of whether um, we're clear for big international conferences next year or not. Giving people the opportunity to participate in this way, in addition to participating in a physical conference, uh, would uh, potentially help a lot of people from lower middle income countries that struggle financially to attend uh, or just can't take the time out to go swanning off to Boston for a, a week but would still like to participate in the conference. So whether they can do, it's a lot more work I imagine, but whether they can do the both at the same time potentially in future or even do something like, um, we were talking about this before, like the Olympics do where maybe they could make every, you know, the AIC is in the US one year and then elsewhere in the world Maybe they put in a third year rotation where every third year is a, is a virtual one. Yeah. yeah, uh, just, nice. yeah. I, I think what has, I don't, I don't know again, because I'm not behind the stats. I think this was a really fascinating opportunity. And I tweeted about this as well for people from other diseases to come and see what's going on in dementia. We talk about this also often now heart disease researchers and cancer and, and people working in diabetes and things like this could learn from each other if only they'd go to each other's conferences but nobody's got the money or time to go to a conference that's not relevant to you um it'd be really great if you know there are some researchers working in other diseases at the moment that came along to this conference to inspire their own work and get some new ideas maybe um it'd be brilliant to see that this is all we've got time for thank you ever so much for everybody to attend i wish we were now going off to a bar to enjoy a few drinks but um I'm sure we can all do that uh, in our own kitchens. Thank you very much, uh, Courtney, Rory, and James for joining us today. Thank we you, have <laughs> We have profiles on all of today's panelists on our website, including details of how you can find them on Twitter. Please do go look at their posters, go look at their talks, follow them on Twitter, uh, and please do follow up on the conversation we've had today with them offline. Um, you can uh, please like, subscribe, and review our podcast through the website, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, everywhere where you find your podcast to search for The Venture Researcher. Um, we'll be back tomorrow with uh, Dr. Anna Volkmer, Daniela Wilson, and Dr. Leonardus uh, Shuloris uh, to talk about day three. 
Um, and also as well, I should say, you can ask Alexa now and she'll find the podcast. So if you just say, Alexa, play the Dementia Researcher podcast, it will. Thank you very much, everybody. Have a good evening. Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.